Thank you, Kendra. I forgot to change the first slide. We're not in Genesis 45. It'll be Genesis 46 if you have your Bibles. I remember the first night I stayed in my college dorm at Oklahoma Baptist. Uh, OBU is unique in a lot of ways. And so when you show up, uh, just in case you decide to go there one day, uh, from where we were at our house in, in Panhandle, it was a four-hour drive, and so we stayed the night before in a hotel, and then my mom and I roll up. She's in her Chevy Impala, and I'm in my Suzuki SX4 crossover, uh, which is just a glorified four-wheeler. And so we roll up, park in front of my dorm, you know, not really sure what to do, and then all of a sudden, all of these college kids just bombard our cars and start shaking them back and forth. There's kids with, like, paint on their face and our mascots there and the school president is there doing all of them. We're like, what in the world is going on? And so they're like, get out of the car. And we're like, okay. And so we get out and they pop the trunk and they just start carrying my boxes into the dorm. Um, like you guys go over here. So we walk over to this place. We sign up, get all of our dorm stuff, find out what dorm I'm in. They knew before I knew walk upstairs. And then all of my stuff is just sitting on my bed, ready for me to, to unload it all. Had I known that I would have packed more heavy things. I went potluck with my roommate, which just means you don't know who you're going to get. And so I got some guy from rural Oklahoma. Uh, We had the same major, small rural towns. He's a really nice guy. Uh, We have a meeting, and then our parents end up in a split. And so we go to Rayleigh Chapel, and the parents go somewhere else. And it's just the same kind of nonsense. I'll never forget it. Uh, We're sitting there watching this video, and it's like the president, hello, welcome to Oklahoma Baptist University. And then all of a sudden the screen just goes off all of the lights in the chapel go off and it's just pitch black except for the stained glass windows and then they start playing eye of the tiger and all of those crazy people who jumped and shook our cars flood into rayleigh chapel and run around in a circle for 15 minutes this is just school in oklahoma i think it was weird and then a lot of it felt like church camp they divided us into small groups and we went to worship deals and we go do service projects and for the first week before classes started i was like this is awesome should have started college earlier but i remember that first day my mom and i hug she leaves uh she goes back to to panhandle drives off to texas and then i remember laying in bed in my dorm bed and realizing this is not a comfortable bed And it should have been a red flag when a guy who, the first year I was there was the 100th year anniversary of OBU. And there was a guy who must have stayed in that dorm like year one of OBU. And he was like, oh, nothing has changed since I've left. And I was like, that's probably not good. And so I didn't sleep great. I was uncomfortable. And then there was also this new roommate like right there. And I was like, I don't know him. All I know is he's from Oklahoma. It's a little scary. I didn't sleep great. It was new. I mean, I'd been away from home before, but not for that long. And I was running track and cross country. And so I didn't get to leave on the weekends and go back home like it seemed like everybody else did. It was just new. It wasn't what my life was before. And I'm grateful for it. But it was a moment for me that was just a a, a milestone. It was a moment now for me where I was like, okay, I'm I'm still under my mom's umbrella of kind of protection and, and shelter. But at the same time, I'm not. She's not here. She's four hours away. Same thing happened when Addie was born. It was great. We were in love. She was uh, awesome. She's the only child we've had that did not end up in the NICU, just our easygoing one. Uh, 24 hours after she's born, they're like, you have to leave. 
and you have to take her with you. And they didn't send us with a nurse. They didn't send us with an instruction book. They let us take a baby home. It was frightening. We lived an hour and a half from the hospital. Addie started crying, so we pulled over in Sanford, Texas, if you know where that's at, for I don't know how long, trying to get Addie to calm down. We did not do that with the other two. I remember that first night laying her in her crib that I had put together weeks beforehand, hoping that, man, I hope those little screws and that little ratchet tightened down right. I remember laying in my bed thinking, man, I hope she's okay. I didn't sleep good that first night. Never done this before in my life. It changed. And, and every child since then, there's things that are more familiar. It's not been as much of a process. In fact, with Cannon, the nurse came down to our car to make sure that I put the car seat in the right way. And I was deeply offended. And she had to walk back upstairs knowing that I did it right and her trip was wasted. But those are milestones for us. There are times when our lives shift drastically. And we all have those times where that first night or that first time we're doing things, it just feels odd and different. And what we see here is Jacob is going to experience one of these in, in this chapter. And it's a really unusual situation for him. He's knowing his family background. It puts Jacob in a really odd place on a decision that he has to make. But God shows us and affirms what he's doing. He shows up and he affirms what he's doing. And then you and I can learn that who God is far beyond you and me by looking at stories like this. And so what we'll see is that God uses different circumstances to teach multiple people the same lesson. We'll all go through different things in life for God to teach us the same lesson. But at the same time, God will use different circumstances to teach two people the same lesson. He'll also use the same circumstance to teach two different people two different lessons and that God works in ways that we can't fully and truly understand. We're going to see that the gospel is not just some news that's taken one way and then it's over. That it's something that continues to impact us and to shape us and it shapes you and me in different ways through different seasons, forming us and growing us into whom God would have us to be. So with that being said... Genesis 46, let me pray, and then we will dive in. God, you are the Father. And as Father, you are God of of everything. Nothing is beyond you. Nothing is bigger than you. You know all, and you see all, and you're sovereign over all. And God, you are also good. And so as we walk through this text this morning, open our ears to hear you. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to be shaped and molded by you. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And Lord, save those who need to be saved this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now before we dive into the text, I want to set the context first, because this is important for us when we read this first part, to see this before we read it. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And God uses this tragedy in Joseph's life to prepare him for a leadership role that we were now going to get to see him fulfilling and that we've been seeing him fulfill for the last few weeks. Think about this. We we finally got some rain yesterday and this morning, and it's certainly a time to praise God. But what Joseph and them are going through is a seven-year famine. Seven years where the weather would not allow a crop to grow. Seven years where there wasn't enough food being harvested. I imagine on the seventh year when it finally broke and it rained and God provided what was needed, that the people were just elated by that. 
I think how it feels about this rain. Like it's been so long and there's just a joy and a, a grace that comes with it. But it hasn't been seven years. And so through some unforeseen circumstances by the family, Joseph is the one who's in charge of distributing all of this grain that the family's come to buy from Egypt. He's the number two person in all of Egypt. I can't get over this. 22 years ago, he was sold into slavery with nothing. And now, 22 years down the road, he's second in command only under Pharaoh in what is the strongest nation in the world at the time. That's phenomenal. And so the brothers need grain, and so Joseph, not telling them who he is, sends them through all these tests to see if they've grown, if they've changed. And, and what Joseph's tests prove is that the brothers have grown, that they're not throwing Benjamin out like they threw him out. Different circumstances, different ways, but they're being grown in Christ, just like Joseph was in his slavery. So Joseph reveals himself to his family. They cry. It's a common theme with Joseph. He's a crybaby. And then Pharaoh and Joseph send the brothers back to get everybody else and bring them to Egypt because they're on year two of a seven-year famine, which means two minus seven is five. There's five more years left. And so the brothers do this. And Pharaoh sends supplies and wagons, everything that they need, and this is where we pick up in the story. Verse 46. Sorry, chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob, remember, Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So let's pause, because there's a whole lot in here that we may not remember. Beersheba in Genesis is an extremely important location. It was a common stopping point for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. It's in Beersheba that Ishmael was sent away from Abraham. Ishmael is is Abraham's oldest son, born of Hagar, when they had that mistake, his Egyptian servant. It's also in the wilderness of Beersheba that God protects Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham is living in Beersheba when he's told by God to go sacrifice Isaac and that God spares Isaac by providing a sacrificial ram in his place. For Isaac, Jacob's dad, Beersheba is the place where God spoke to him to reaffirm his covenant with Isaac after Abraham had died. Beersheba is where Isaac lived. So a lot of Jacob's childhood life, the stew story, when he sells the birthright to Esau, he steals the birthright from Esau, when he, and he steals the blessing from Esau, when Isaac's eyes are growing dim, all of that takes place in Beersheba. There's a lot of family history at this spot that Jacob decides to stop. But they also have family history with going down to Egypt too. In Genesis 12, God covenants with Abraham for the first time and says, I'm going to be your God, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you people, and you're going to be a blessing. That's the the threefold layer of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, people, blessings. It'd be a blessing. And immediately after that, a famine sends Abraham to Egypt. Similar story here. And Abraham tries to disguise his wife as his sister so that Pharaoh doesn't kill him. So immediately after the first covenant, Abraham already fails at being a blessing to other nations. 
And what we see is there's a plague that strikes Egypt when Abraham is there until they learn that Sarah is actually his, she is his sister, but is also his wife. And so they repent of that, get everything sorted out. Pharaoh gives Abraham a bunch of stuff, and then it's like, you have to leave. So not a good experience for the Israelites in Egypt. If you fast forward to Genesis 26, this is where God reiterates his covenant, but with Isaac. It's not a new covenant. It's the same covenant. Land, people, be a blessing. And there's another famine. And this time God tells Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. That's where he wanted to go. And so right after this, he goes off to the the land of the Philistines, and he gets in an argument with Abimelech's men about digging wells, and Abimelech takes from them. And what we see with Isaac is he cuts a covenant with Abimelech and ends up being a blessing for all of them, that Isaac is the blessing that he's supposed to be for other nations. And then we look at Jacob. And so with his family history, everything that he knows about his tradition would tell him, do not go to Egypt. That's where Abraham went, and it didn't end up good. The next famine, God said, don't go to Egypt. Now we have a third famine. Don't go to Egypt. But Jacob's left with a hard decision because everything in his life is saying, you should go to Egypt. Joseph is in Egypt. Joseph is the one who stored up all of the grain. Joseph is your son, and not just your son. He's your oldest son of Rachel, your favorite wife. He's the son you thought was dead. He's not dead anymore. Go down to Egypt. And so Joseph is stuck with his traditions and his emotions, and he's trying to figure out what is God's will for me? How am I supposed to make this decision? How am I going to make the right decision? How do I discern what God's will is for my life in this particular moment? And so Jacob does something that if we know his character should surprise us. He makes a sacrifice to God crazy, right? He says, to discern God's will and what God wants me to do, I'm going to go to God. Steps back from his emotions, back from his desires, back from his experience, back from his tradition, and he says, all of those things can be great and can be good, but if the Lord says something different, that's what I need to do. So he goes straight to the source. And it's important for us to remember, Jacob doesn't have a written word like we do. There's no Bible for Jacob. It's just these traditions that have been passed down to him. Moses is writing Genesis in the wilderness after the Exodus. So he goes to God, he sacrifices, and he waits to hear from God, and God gives him a vision. I love that God says, I am God. To an Israelite people that are wandering in the wilderness, the original audience for the book of Genesis, just those words, I am, would make their ears perk up and hear. That's what God tells Moses his name is. I am. And so he's saying, I am God. You've got these people that are wandering through the wilderness, waiting like they've been rescued from Egypt, but they haven't been brought into the land of Canaan yet. And so one of the questions that they would be continually asking themselves is, well, how did we get into Egypt in the first place? And so God gives them this text to say, this is exactly how your your people got into Egypt in the first place. And if we look at it, it's kind of frightening because who sends them to Egypt? God. The same God who told Isaac, do not go to Egypt during the famine of Isaac's famine is telling Jacob, go into Egypt. And it's in Egypt that I'm going to make you a great nation. That's a covenant reaffirmation, right? One of the deals is you're going to have offspring and you're going to have land. So this God is saying, I'm going to make you a bunch of kids in Egypt. That I'm going to keep my covenant no matter what. 
And so according to God's plan, in Egypt, God is going to make you great. And God says, I'm going to go with you. I'm not going to just send you to Egypt and, and leave you down there. And I'm also going to bring you, your people, back up into the land of Canaan. For those who are hearing this in the wilderness with Moses, they must be going, that's us. We're the ones that God is promising here that he's going to bring us back into the land of Canaan. And I imagine for them as they're wandering about, trying to figure out what to do, where to go, where to live, no real settlement, just living in tents with a tabernacle, that the days and the weeks and the months, would, it could often feel like maybe God is not with us. In fact, we see their grumbling a lot of times in Exodus where they're like, we should just go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. At least we had a place to stay. But it's in Genesis that we see God sends them to Egypt in the first place, and it's God who promises to bring them back up from Egypt, meaning that God is with them even in the wilderness as they're wandering, and it feels like he's not. And God promises Jacob something that, that is just for Jacob. He says, you'll close been, uh, Joseph's going to close your eyes, which means when Jacob dies and breathes his last, it'll be Joseph who's there to bury his father. This is actually the second time in Genesis that God has promised that he would not leave them as he sends them into a foreign country. In Genesis 15, if you remember that, verses 13 and 14, God tells Abraham way back, Jacob's great-grandfather, his grandfather, that your offspring will sojourn and be servants and I will bring them back. That's the exodus. So Joseph's bringing everybody down to Egypt. And all of this is done by the silent hand of God moving in the background. That God is not the, the author of sin, but he uses sin for our good and for his glory. And so it's God who initially gets the Israelites into Egypt. And God is telling Jacob, God is telling Abraham. Like you, they, when they went to Egypt, when God told Jacob, uh, Abraham, when you went to Egypt, they sinned, they messed it up. And Isaac's kept from Egypt. But now God is saying, go to Egypt. I'm going to be with you. This is part of the plan. This foreign country is the next step in your sanctification process. I'm undoing the sin uh, that's wrong. I'm undoing the wrongs. Remember back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin and God gives the punishments out and he tells Eve, your son's going to crush the head of the serpent. And God is still working on that plan saying, this is a part of how I, my son, we know Jesus, the descendant of Eve, is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's my plan. It's for, your, it's for my glory and it's for your good. But all of that is going to be extremely hard for them to see in Genesis 46. Think of them just in, in Exodus as the Israelites are walking around. How easy it would feel to feel like God is absent in their life. What does God care about them as they're walking in a desert again? And for you and I, the struggles that we're going through, the mundanity of life, just the same over and over, the times in life when we just don't even think about anymore, brushing our teeth. That it's those times in life that were not overlooked by the Lord. The reality is that God is not beyond any of our circumstances, whether they're important, like big life-altering, changing things, or just the mundane circumstances of cooking lunch again. But it's so often in our life that we begin to ask, why, God? Why is this happening? If something bad happens, we're like, why did God allow this to take place? What is, is God doing? And the reality is, if, if we want to be biblical and we want to grow in the Lord, we have to change the way we approach those questions. 
Instead of asking, why is this happening or what is God doing? The question we should be asking is, what is God revealing to me? Because sometimes God will use those circumstances and those times in your life to reveal his grace and to reveal his mercy. And other times God will use those circumstances in our lives to reveal pride and sin that we have stored up that needs to be repented of and to groan from. And other times God will use those things in our life just to reveal who God is to us in a way that we haven't thought about or felt before. Don't waste those times. Don't waste those seasons that God gives us. Ask, what is God revealing to me? Verse 5. So then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The the sons of the Israelites carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent him to carry. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, and his sons and his sons... Uh, sons with him and his daughters and his son's daughters and all of his offspring that he brought with him into Egypt. So that text right there just basically tells us Jacob and all of his family are obedient to God's word. They make a sacrifice, they get an affirmation from God, God speaks to them and say, go and do this, and then they do it. And everything is going with them. They pack up everything. And the reality that you and I need to see is that no matter where we're at in our life and no matter what happens to us, there will always be a point in our faith, in our faith in God, that means obedience is required from us. Even when it feels odd and even when it feels difficult. See, salvation is God changing the very core of who we are and sanctification is God changing all of us to be more and more like him over time. And this happens in us, by God working in us, being discipled and making disciples. So the things that we can do to grow in the holiness of God are not new things. It's the same things that we show you. Read your Bible regularly. Pray consistently. Gather together often and just grow in Christ. There's a famous quote that's helped me in my thinking in life and what I want to do in my ministry. And the quote is, long obedience in the same direction. That's what I want my life to be. It seems like far too many are wanting to be world changers or wanting to be influencers or wanting to make this massive difference on this huge, massive scale while neglecting where the Lord has placed them and the opportunities that are right in front of them because they seem small. Little things become big things. And faith requires obedience even in the little when it might feel odd and it might feel difficult. What we can do is we can learn to lean into the gospel. We can obey Jesus, not for Jesus' approval. We can learn to obey Jesus, not so that we can be better than others. We can learn to obey Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. And the reality is, the way the world is spinning and the way our life and our culture and our country and, and, and just general thing looks, is it's probably going to cost us something at some point in our lives. It may cost us respect. You may get called names and be made fun of. Look at you. You're holier than thou. You get a goody two-shoes. You're just judgmental. But remember, when we're being made fun of, that obedience to God is costing you something. And when it costs us something and we get made fun of, we look an awful lot like Jesus. Prophesy, Jesus. Who punched you? The guard said as they had him clothed on the cross. They throw a purple robe on him because that's a sign of royalty. And so this king 
their eyes, this king is being murdered, and so they're just making a mockery of Jesus. A, a, a crown of thorns is meant to mock Jesus. A, a reed scepter is meant to mock and make fun of Jesus. I think I can handle being called a goody-goody two-shoe. Yet in the end, obedience to God is more important than acceptance in the world. I was reading this morning in Acts 7, which is where Stephen gets uh, martyred. And I love the story. He had just been voted on as the first, one of the first deacons in the church. And now he's about to be killed. And so he preaches this sermon that just outlines the Old Testament. It's a beautiful sermon that's recorded in Scripture for us. And he, he points that Jesus is the one who fills the Old Testament. And this makes the Jewish leaders extremely angry. And so the Bible says they ground their teeth at him. I don't know exactly how that, like, like I can picture it in my head. And I'm like, that is, they're angry. They're, they're just everything within them is welling up. And so Stephen looks, the Bible says, full of the Holy Spirit. And full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up and he sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the the right hand of God, and then uh, this dude named Saul, Paul, holds all these coats while they throw rocks at Stephen to kill him, and as Stephen's being beaten and pummeled to death with stones, he looks up, and he still sees the glory of God, he looks up, and he still sees Jesus, and he prays two things, he prays for Jesus to receive him, and he prays for Jesus to forgive them, don't hold these sins against the people who are killing me. He doesn't pray to be saved from physical torture. He doesn't pray for justice. He doesn't pray for his trial to end soon. He adores Jesus. He focuses on him. In the Bible, that's what a person filled with the Holy Spirit does. They exalt Jesus in all of their life. They obey Jesus even when it's extremely difficult. Verse 8. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanach, Paul, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zoar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elan, and Jahil, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padamaran, together with his daughter Dinah. According to his sons and his daughters, numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Ardoi, and Ariel. The sons of Asher, Emna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berar, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berari, Heber, and Malchil. These are the sons of Zippah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And the sons of Joseph in the land of Egypt were Manasseh and Ephraim, whom uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gear, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mufpim, Hufpim, Ardi. These are the sons of Rachel, whom bore to Jacob fourteen persons in all. 
and the sons of Dan, Hashem, and the sons of Nephtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem, the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban bore, uh, gave to Rachel and his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into the land of Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. I know that's a whole lot and a lot of really cool names. But there's something important for us to see in passages of scripture like this. It's filled with 70 people. Think back to Genesis 12 when God covenants with old man Abraham and old man Sarah. Old woman Sarah. Oof. Way before that could have happened, right? They're infertile, cannot have children. And God looks at them and says, I'm going to make a nation where there's more stars in the sky. You'll have more kids than there are stars in the sky. You'll have more kids than there are grain of sand on the sea. And so they finally get pregnant. Right. They, they had, their sin was they, they kept trying to force God's plan. Fine, Abraham, you can sleep with Hagar and have a son there. And that's what God says. No, that's not my plan. It's going to be with Sarah. And so finally, Sarah gets pregnant. And so there's one offspring. <laughs> Isaac. We think about Isaac's story. Rebecca was also infertile could not have kids until she finally has kids and she has twins. So now you're looking at three. So after years and years and generations and generations, the family is still small. But looking at the number 70 compared to it starting with Abraham and Sarah, Joseph has been, or Jacob has been blessed and God is showing us that he's fulfilling his covenant by growing this family to 70 people by the end of his life. Think about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. 70 to them sounds small. When they're saved from Pharaoh, there's debate on how many. It's either 30,000 or 2 million Israelites that existed in that, that group then. You see how God is expanding this family and making it this large nation, this, this people. We can look now that if we're Christians in the Bible, that we're told that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that he has adopted us into his family, which means now the number is far more than two million. And every time we see a genealogy in Genesis, there's a shift that takes place. We've walked through a few genealogies in Genesis. And every single time it signifies a shift. And what we see happening now is that Jacob's family, the Israelites, are now going to live in Egypt for a time, not in the promised land. And eventually it's going to feel like they're forgotten, that God has forgotten them, and they will cry out to God in Egypt, and God will rescue them in the most unlikely way, and God will save them in such a way that the exodus becomes core, like a core identity to this people group. Every year they're going to celebrate the Passover, which reminds them of God rescuing them from this captivity. Other nations, when they're traveling around, are going to hear about what God did for them to Egypt, and they're going to be scared of this people group because of what God has done for them. That he rescued this nation. Oftentimes, this is what God does. When it feels like not much is happening, 
is oftentimes when God is in the background changing and moving the most. And then verse 28, and he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And when they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph prepared his chariot and he went up to meet Israel, his father. And in Goshen, he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. I think it's interesting that it's Judah who Jacob sends ahead. This is the same Judah who wanted to sell Joseph into slavery 22 years ago. It was his idea. It was also the same Judah who offered to sacrifice himself in place of Benjamin. See, Judah's clearly seen in the family as this leader now, even though he's not the oldest. And so Jacob sends him out of way to scout away. Joseph readies his chariots. He rides out to meet the family. Joseph's a crier. We know he's a crier. It's a common theme. And so he sees his dad. They hug. And I love that the text just says they, they just cried for a good while. And Jacob tells Joseph, like, I can die now. My life is, is complete. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel for us, that we are saved by the sacrificial death of Jesus, and it requires obedience even uh, in hard times and often in hard times. And it's a promise not to an easy life. It's a promise to a life that's worth something. And so for Jacob in his life, he's looking at this thinking that he gave up both of his beloved sons, both of the sons that Rachel had bore to him. And instead now he receives back both of his sons, even one who he thought was dead for a long time. And now he gets to hug that son and to weep with him. See, the Bible tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not spiritually alive, that we're spiritually dead. And when Jesus comes, he takes the wrath of God for us. He takes our sin, which is great. And this is news, but, but the news is better than just that. It's better than we could ever imagine. He not only comes and he takes our punishment, but he gives life to us. He credits us with his righteousness. So now we're co-heirs with Christ and we're placed where we're at in life for a purpose and for a reason. We're not just out here doing nothing in the middle of Ira, Texas until the Lord calls us home. We're sojourners. We're not just wasting our time. That God has you and that God has me here with the people we're around for a purpose. No matter what we do as humans, we look to find purpose. We look to find fulfillment. We look for things that make us feel complete. And everything that the world offers at the beginning will feel great. And as time goes on, it leaves you in a worse state than when you start. And you and I, if we're Bible-believing Christians, have the truth of the gospel of Jesus that not only saves you and I, it sustains us for a lifetime of ministry. So we look for people to share that gospel with that need it, whether they know they need it or they don't. And when we come across other believers, we we want to disciple and grow other believers. We want other believers to speak into our life and to grow us and to disciple us more and more. 
See, I like this text. I like this passage of scripture because it's kind of one that we just skim over and try to get to when Joseph and Jacob meet back up and then there's some more blessings that are coming down the line and, and things that happen at the end of Genesis, but we don't need to skip this one. Because sometimes what happens is the gospel feels like it's just this this theological thing that happens in our mind, but the practical everyday living out of my life when I'm folding this, we call it Mount Laundry Manjaro at our house, when we're folding the pile of laundry or mowing the grass or we're doing whatever with the kids we're doing, or all those mundane, everyday, easy little things in life that tend to overwhelm us more than the actual big things, that's what the gospel's for too. It's not just for part of us, that it's for all of us. And just like how God promises Jacob that he will go down to Egypt with them, God comes to us, Jesus comes to us, and he comes to us as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells us the the, uh, Holy Spirit, the, the helper, is going to come. And if we're believers in Jesus, we believe he's indwelling in us right now, that he has not abandoned us, but rather he is in us. We recognize that our faith in God is going to mean in this life that we're going to have to obey sometimes, even when it's hard. But we worship and we serve a covenant-keeping God who makes a covenant and never breaks it. And in fact, Jesus makes a new covenant with us. And we recognize this the God that's sovereign, this God that knows all things, this God that sees all things, this God that hears all things, this God about the whole world is sovereign, and this God is not a bad God. But God is good. And so we can go about our normal, everyday life trusting in that God, leaning into that God's gospel. And growing in the grace and the mercy of that God. Let's pray. God, it's to you that we pray. It's because of you that we gather. It's because of you that we have hope. It's because of you that we have grace. It's because of you that we have mercy, God. It's because of you that we have anything that we do have. God, I thank you for texts like this where we're reminded of how great you are. That no matter where we're at in life and no matter what circumstances we're going through in life, whether they're easy or they're hard or they're good or they feel bad, we know that you haven't abandoned us to those, that you are growing us in them. God, I pray that you would reveal to us what you're teaching us. God, use us in Ira. You've planted us here for a purpose and for a reason. Help us to find the people who need your gospel and to lovingly and boldly share it with them. Help us to have a joy about us as we go about our days and our weeks and our years. A peace and a calm that understands, God, that no matter what happens in life and there will be crazy things that happen that we can't control, we know that that you are in control. And it's not beyond you. 
So God, for the believers that are here this morning, I pray that you would help us to have a peace. God, to know that faith in you means obedience. We don't obey to get things from you. We don't obey to to look right. We obey because you first loved us and you perfectly obeyed your law. God, for any unbelievers who are here, I pray that you would help them to hear your gospel, the good news that Jesus died in my place and to repent of their sin and to turn to you in salvation that you would save them by grace through faith help us as Kendra comes and and leads us in worship that we would worship you that we would glorify you we would make much of Jesus it's in your name we pray Amen Kendra if you'll come and lead us in worship Uh, if we'll stand if you